Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. My name is Nicholas Viltagen and I can tell you that there aren't really an awful lot of news to talk about since we spoke last. But do not despair, we have decided to bring on the Norwegian author Nils Henrik Smith, who has written a book about the history of the penalty. You'll be hearing my interview with Nils Henrik after the break. Nils Henrik Smith is an uh, acclaimed Norwegian author who has written about the beautiful game for the Norwegian football magazine Josimar and the Norwegian public broadcaster NRK. And these days he has received a lot of praise and acclaim from the Norwegian press for his new book about the history of the penalty. That in itself should be reason enough to ask him onto our show. Thanks for joining us, Nils Henrik. Thank you for having me. To get the most obvious question out of the way, why did you decide to write a book about the history of the penalty? What attracted you to the particular subject? The very short answer to that is uh, because Roberto Baggio missed a penalty in the 1994 World Cup final. I was 14 at the time, and it was a very impressionable age, and Baggio was, was my hero. And it was a very dramatic and emotional penalty shootout where also uh, Franco Baresi missed for Italy three weeks He had played the game of his life three weeks after uh, having a knee operation. And then Baju, having basically dragged Italy to the final with some inspirational performances in the knockout stages, was injured or at least not 100% hit and had been a shadow of his usual self in the final, but still had to take a penalty kick and he had to score to avoid defeat for Italy and then obviously as most people old enough will remember shot high into the sky and and that particular episode for me was sort of it encapsulates the drama of the penalty shootout in particular which which has this ritual function in the game of football and and that's probably the brief answer but then Again, I'm also old enough to remember the previous World Cup in Italy in 1990, where penalties played a very big role in the knockout stages. Three of the four quarterfinals were decided by penalties. Both semifinals were decided by penalty shootouts. And uh, then, of course, the final was decided by a penalty by Andy Bremer. So from that age, I was, I was fascinated by penalties, which, in a sense... They are a part of football, but they also exist outside of it. It's an individual duel in a team game, which always fascinated me. And then many years later, after I had been writing about football for quite a while already for Musimar and for some other Norwegian publications, my uh, publisher uh, got in touch and asked if I wanted to write a book about football, which obviously I did, and then we had some discussions and ended up with the history of the penalty kick as something that I thought I could write an engaging book about, which hopefully I have. So that's the story. Indeed. Yes, you absolutely have, have accomplished that, in, in my opinion. You know, when it comes to the, the history of the penalty, what, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in my mid-30s, I've I've seen the penalty being taken from the penalty spot all along. But as you write in the book, the origin of the penalty, it, it didn't didn't occur from the get-go of the game of football. It actually is something that developed over the years, yes, wasn't it? I mean, the penalty had existed for almost a century before you were born, but still, it's significantly younger than the game of football itself. The English FA was founded in 1863, and that's when the first official set of rules was published. But the penalty kick was not invented until about 1890 and did not become an official part of the rules until 1891. The reason for that happening at that particular time was that from the late 1880s, professionalism and the Professional Football League were instituted in England and From that time on, football was no longer only a question of honor and prestige, but also increasingly about money, which led to an increase in foul play, violent tackles in front of goal or blatant handballs on the goal line. And since there was no 
real sanction against such fouls uh, at the time. An Irish amateur goalkeeper called William McCrum invented the penalty kick. He thought that it was unfair that there was no collective punishment for grave individual fouls and wanted to do something about this. But initially, the suggestion of introducing penalties was met with horror and a storm of protest, in part because uh, players and officials argued that all footballers were gentlemen who would never consciously commit a foul, contrary to all available evidence, of course. And also, uh, William McCrum himself was attacked because it was claimed that he, as a goalkeeper, was only interested in bringing himself and his colleagues onto center stage. But still, the times were changing. And in early 1891, in the FA Cup quarterfinal between Notts County and Stoke, Stoke were denied an equalizer in the final minute when a Notts County defender handballed on the goal line and then went out of the cup. And although the league was thriving at the time, the FA Cup was still the most prestigious tournament one could win. And it caused outrage that Stoke should be denied the opportunity to proceed in the tournament due to such a blatant foul. And so eventually, in June 1891, the International Football Association Board, which decides the rules, did so then and still do, met in Glasgow and decided to introduce the penalty kick from the following league season. That is within the four British football associations, which was what they then had jurisdiction over. And so they did, and the first penalty kick was awarded to Wolves in a game against Accrington in September 1891. Was that taken from penalty spot, or did the penalty spot arrive later on? The penalty spot arrived later, which in 1891 there was a line drawn across the field, 12 yards from goal, and the taker could choose to take the penalty from anywhere along that line. You would assume that most penalty takers would have chosen to shoot from right in front of goal, but theoretically could shoot from anywhere as long as it was on that line. The penalty box and the penalty spots were only introduced in 1902. That's a decade or so after the there were also other differences. For example, penalties could only be awarded if teams asked for them to be awarded. The penalty by appeal. Yeah, sort of. Like the appeal system you have in various sports, and which some also have suggested to introduce in football following the introduction of video assistant referees. So that's, that's interesting that actually you had a situation in the 1890s which... It's not that dissimilar from what we have now. <laughs> well, it sort of becomes full circle, doesn't it? In your book, you write as well that the penalty and the introduction of the penalty has had consequences for referees and the way they have conducted their business on the field, hasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Before the introduction of the penalty kick, the, the referee was actually stationed on the sideline by the halfway line. But of course, if you are going to award penalties, then you need to have to be closer to the action, and this led to the referee actually entering the field of play for the first time, which also had consequences for previously that each team were allowed to nominate an umpire who would sort of negotiate with the referee if there, was, if there were disagreements. But then after the referee himself entered the field, the umpires eventually became neutral linesmen or assistant referees as we call them today. Hmm. Well, you alluded to it earlier on, uh, one of the most cruel and glorious elements of the whole penalty and the introduction of it is that we eventually had the pleasure of getting to watch penalty shootouts in, in big tournaments and cup competitions. And in your book, you do write about a German guy named Karl Wald who is said to have played a vital role developing the penalty shootout according to a website run by his grandkid Torsten Schacht. However, Karl Wald, the German, wasn't the only one who thought of the penalty shootout being a good idea as a possible tiebreaker. So how exactly did we end up with penalty shootouts? 
Well, firstly, to be fair to Karl Wald, there is uh, no reason to believe anything else that he did actually conceive of the idea of a penalty shootout independent of anyone else. The only problem is that he was uh, certainly not the only one who did so and also not the first. Karl Wald was a referee who took charge of more than a thousand games in Germany from the 30s until uh, the late 60s and towards the end of his career he was experimenting with penalty shootouts in amateur and youth games and he got the penalty shootout approved at a local level in Bavaria and it also seems that when the German FA accepted it as a tiebreaker in the death of then they got the idea directly from him but he was not the one who got it officially approved internationally. The suggestion of a penalty shootout was brought to the international board by a man called Ko Evkaik, uh, who was a Malaysian referee who at that time sat on FIFA's refereeing committee. This is around 1970. But he was actually only acting on the suggestion of his friend Josef Dagan, who was an Israeli referee who had, like Karl Walt, been experimenting with the shootouts during the late 1960s. And then it was eventually approved in 1970, but there are lots of examples of penalty shootouts being used at a much earlier stage than that. The earliest documented example of a shootout, although it differed quite a lot in form from the modern variety, uh, was in a pre-season tournament before the state championship in Sao Paulo in Brazil in 1942, which is a full 28 years before it was officially approved at international level. The first mention of penalty shootouts I found in the Norwegian press uh, were from the summer of 1945, uh, although it should be noted that we're not talking about shootouts as a tiebreaker in competitive games, but rather as half-time entertainment during league matches. And so there are lots of lots of examples of shootouts being used years before its official approval, but we simply don't know who got the idea in each and every case. Well, it, it seems like that there have been many people who had roughly the same idea, and I think you document that rather well in your book. And, you know, the alternative before that, before the penalty shootout arrived, was that there was a third match played between two sides, and if that didn't break the tie, a coin toss was used back in the day. And uh, the most famous example from the world of German football, or West German football that I can think of, is actually SDF to Köln, losing to Liverpool in 1965. After drawing three matches, they lost due to a coin toss. And the first coin toss, actually, the coin ended up in the mud, being stuck in limbo. And, you know, when you say that penalty shootouts aren't fair, that is the alternative you were talking about before them. Yeah, that's that's one of the... People always talk about shootouts being a lottery, but the fact is that before the shootout, it genuinely was a lottery. And a particular reason that Josef Dagan was so hellbent on getting the shootout approved was that in 1968 at the Mexico Olympics, Israel lost in the quarterfinals of the football tournament to Bulgaria, not on a coin toss, but they draw, you know, papers, little scraps of paper from a giant sombrero, obviously. Unsurprisingly, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, ending up on the losing side of this uh, rather absurd uh, event, uh, the Israelis and Dagan in particular were not best pleased. So then the following year, they actually wrote an article in FIFA's in-house magazine about how the penalty shooter would work. And then the year after that, they got it formally introduced and approved by the international board. We've touched upon German performances in penalty shootouts earlier. I was looking at this earlier and it didn't come as much as a surprise to me. Um, but the German national team has actually not lost a single penalty shootout since the first one ever. They they had one in 1976, which they lost. After that, they've had seven more shootouts and they've won them all. They've beaten England twice during penalty shootouts. And England has a very spotted history when it comes to penalty shootouts themselves. So 
why are some teams seemingly so much better at this at progressing through penalty shootouts than others? England always seem to lose on penalty shootouts. Germany always seem to win. Is there some logic or some reason behind that, or are we just talking about pure coincidences here? You know, ever since I started telling people that I I was writing a book about penalties, and also after it was published, the question I get most often by far is why do Germany always win penalty shootouts? And the closest I've come to an answer is that perhaps it's because they lost their first one. You know, you very easily get into cliche territory when talking about the Germans being organized and disciplined and rational and calm and so on. But I think there's a kernel of truth in that, even so, that perhaps an important reason that Germany have historically been very successful at football is that they have an ability to learn from experience. And that perhaps the trauma of losing the first big penalty shootout in an international tournament in very dramatic circumstances and in a game which in which they were big favorites to win, has taught them something. And the answer to the question of whether it's just coincidence is clearly no. Penalty taking is a skill, and like any other skill, it can be trained. And I think it's probable that the Germans were earlier than many other, even major football nations, in taking penalty shootouts seriously. One thing I found, it's not in the book, but I found it when looking at it, is that Germany have always, which uh, and this I find quite intriguing, Germany have always used substitutes in their penalty shootouts. On at least, I think, two occasions, uh, Asab went first, and in the famous shootout against England at Wembley in 1996, which really created the English penalty trauma, then the two first takers were subs, Thomas Nestler and Thomas Strunz, and the latter only came on two minutes before the end of extra time. So obviously, for the sole reason of taking a penalty. Whereas, by contrast, Terry Venables, the England coach, did not use a single of the substitutes in that game. So there was not this option of... And this might seem significant, but it, it suggests that the Germans, from fairly early on, conscious of the fact that you can use things like that to play a little mind games or manipulate the opponents. And even as late as 2006, we saw that the Argentinian players became unnerved when Jens Lehmann pulled out his famous secret note, which supposedly told him where they would shoot. In actual fact, only two of the players who were mentioned on that note took a penalty in that shootout. And in any case, the notes had become become unreadable because it was drenched in lemon sweat. <laughs> but it's fairly obvious that it did affect the Argentinians. And that, that is really quite remarkable that only 14 years ago, it got to professional football players simply because their opponents had been bothered to prepare for the shootouts. That has changed quite radically since, which, of course, as you mentioned, England is in good a good example of England, really, their penalty trauma started at Wembley because, you know, they, they had then lost twice against Germany. But a few days earlier, they had beaten Spain. So at that stage, it didn't trouble them. But after that, the English always began to look for some sort of excuse outside the shootout itself. Like in 1998, David Beckham was set off for kicking Diego Simeone. In 2004, Wayne Rooney got injured early in the game. Then in 2006, also against Portugal, uh, Rooney got sent off and, and so on and so on. And they also created a theory about a particularly destructive uh, celebrity culture in England, which, uh, which supposedly prevented the players from, from reaching their potential in those kind of situations. Like, they were willing to do anything to not look at the real problem. What do we do wrong in penalty shootouts? But then, when they finally did break the penalty hoodoo two years ago in, during the World Cup in Russia, everything was very different. And of course, it's probably no coincidence that coach then was Garrett Southgate, who missed again at Wembley in 1996. In 2018, the English established 
a penalty task force several months before the tournament, which uh, talked to international experts, people who have an analyzed penalties scientifically and so on. They they paid very much attention to detail. If you watch that shootout against Colombia, then you notice that after each Colombian penalty, then Jordan Pickford, the goalkeeper, picks up the ball and hands it to the next English taker prevent any of the Colombians to interfe- from interfering. Uh, he also, before facing each penalty, he jumped up and touched the bar. Which is not allowed. No, which is very interesting. I don't know if the IFAB decided that due to Pickford's actions, but, but uh, a year after the World Cup, it was specified in the rules that the goalkeeper may not touch the post, the bar, or the net before the penalty is taken. But in any case, that's a very good example of that the English had eventually, after lots of misery, realized that something must be done and what must be done is preparing properly. Mm. And perhaps having a few tricks up your sleeve for mind games or the like. Well, talking about having tricks up your sleeve, one of the most famous penalties taken is actually um, on the cover of your book. It's Antonin Penenka's famous penalty against West Germany in 1976. Talking about preparing, Penenka, as you write in your book, said that Sepp Meyer might have actually been on to me if he had watched me uh, play for my club side. Now that we do prepare forwards and backwards and we sort of um, do analyze everything a penalty taker does, we do know what percentage of, of their shots do they place in the middle of, of, of the goal. And goalkeepers know that this now. Have penalty takers actually adjusted to that new world? Do they have to differ their styles more? Uh, has the execution of the penalty changed over the years because of that preparation? I absolutely think so. Like earlier, in you had some very proficient penalty takers who displayed little or no variation. I mean, Alan Shearer always scored, always shot in the same corner, but. In today's game, I don't think that's a viable strategy anymore. And it's also, yeah, the the speed of information and the, the amount of information that it's possible to collect and process has, has changed this whole thing. So if you're now a regular penalty taker at your club and or for your national team, then you need to have the capacity to vary. And that's also, you know... If you're using the so-called goalkeeper independent strategy, you know, picking your corner and sticking with that corner no matter what, then it's important that you don't always go for the same corner. And in that sense, the Panenka, when Panenka did it, he had done it several times in the Czechoslovak League, but at the time he was the absolutely only person in the world who did it. And later it was also, it was not very common. I remember being awed when Francesco Totti did it during... Euro 2000 against the Netherlands, which I also write about in my book. Uh, but today, everyone has seen it. Everyone knows it. Lots of people have done it. Pirlo has done it. Uh, Sergio Ramos has done it. Even Helda Postiga has done it. <laughs> <laughs> so now I think for uh, a top-level penalty taker, it's, it's more considered one of the tools he or she should have in the box. And that's that's an interesting development, definitely. Well, uh, in addition to, you know, having that flow of information and knowing about that as a penalty taker, there are, that plays as well into that psychological aspect there is to taking a penalty or being on the receiving end of a penalty. On the one side, you have the goalkeeper who's nothing to lose in the situation, despite what the Austrian writer Michael Handke would have you believe he has written a book or a text or an essay of some sort that is about the fear of the goalkeeper uh, when he faces the penalty. I botched that title. However, on the other side, you have the penalty taker who's expected to do much better. He's expected to score. And Diego Maradona, one of the greatest footballers we've ever seen, if not the greatest, he had one hell of a dry spell from the spot. Tell us about that. Yeah, this was late in, in Maradona's career, uh, 1996, when he was back at Boca Juniors and sort of trying to get a, one last hurrah by, by winning a title with his beloved Boca. But 
And uh, remarkably, Maradona missed five penalties in a row, which is extraordinary for any player, but of course seems even more extraordinary when it's Maradona, because although he had some famous misses in his career, most notably against Yugoslavia in the 1990 World Cup, he was actually quite a competent penalty taker and scored a fair number of goals for Napoli during his peak years on penalties. He was unusual and modern as a penalty taker for his time in that he almost invariably went for placement over strength, almost always shot low into the corners and more often than not to his unnatural side, that is, to his left for a left-footed player. And, but then he was, you know, the greatest star, uh, not only of Boca or of his generation, but in Argentina football history, and he had this weight of the world on his shoulders, and I guess it just increased even more for each time he missed. But the remarkable thing, of course, is that he was allowed to take five penalties in a row and miss them all. Under normal circumstances, the coach, maybe you miss one, you get to take the next one. Maybe if you miss twice, you get to take the third one. But then when you miss three in a row, it's over. And actually, at one point, Juan Veron took over penalty duties, but then he also missed. <laughs> <laughs> and Maradona was back at it. But I think that points towards... I don't think, I genuinely, Maradona could be incredibly vain and childish and selfish and unprofessional off the pitch, but I genuinely don't think it was his selfishness which caused him to, to take those penalties. It was the sense of responsibility that he had to do this for his team because he was Maradona. And that's, but it points towards a development in the game of football where it becomes much more intertwined with global celebrity culture, which means that the big stars, you have to let them take the, pen the penalties if they want to. Messi, for example, like Maradona, a genius, but a fairly average uh, penalty taker, he will get to take them for both Barca and Argent Argentina as long as he wants to. Same with Cristiano Ronaldo, you can't tell him that he's not going to get to take penalties anymore. And we also had a rather tense uh, situation between uh, Neymar and Edinson Cavani at PSG, uh, where Neymar, having been bought for a world record sum, insisted that it was his divine right to take the penalties, which Cavani would not accept. So, so you get that. For me, of course, it's the situation itself, but it's also that it points towards the development in football where the biggest stars are not only sports icons, they are global brands. That changes the power balance within a football club or in the game itself. So that, that's one of the reasons I've written quite extensively about Maradona's five misses, because it's, it's a situation with penalties which also points beyond the penalty and perhaps be even beyond the game of football itself. And that's the kind of stories I've been trying to find uh, and use in the game. I mean, one, one story I do like about Diego Maradona is, comes from, I think it was from the 86 or 90 World Cup. I think it might have been 86 when a uh, teammate went out late. National team coach Bilal said, um, well, who went out late? I'm not letting you go out and train until you tell us who, who it was and I'll send home that guy. After 30 minutes, Maradona raised the sense that, boss, it was me. You go out and train. Because, you know, Maradona took the blame because he knew that it would make him popular among his teammates and uh, <laughs> his coach could have a laugh about it. And, and that is the sort of bloke that he was within the squad. And that is, I think, why he was so popular among his teammates as well. Because with these players, you oftentimes have, you talk about that power balance within the, within the squad. But with Diego, you couldn't necessarily always be mad at him if he, if he screwed up because he was that type of bloke. Yeah, he was a lovable role. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> he was also very clever. He knew that Bilardo could not send him home, and he also knew that Bilardo would know that he was taking the piss, and then everybody had to have a laugh about it uh, instead of it becoming a bad situation. And more or less everyone who played with him say that he, despite his antics off the pitch, he was a very good teammate on the pitch and in the dressing room. And also, interestingly enough, it was Bilardo again who was the coach at Boca when Diego missed those five penalties. One of the most fearsome disciplinarians in the history of, 
Yeah, but when he could not fully control Maradona. <laughs> <laughs> Who could ever? One particular penalty decision you write about and in your book, and returning to some German football again, is is a from from the East German Oberliga. This penalty went down in the history books as the penalty of shame, as it was awarded to BFC Dynamo, the Stasi side from Berlin against Lokomotive Leipzig. Tell us about that particular penalty decision and why you found it interesting. Yeah, uh, this was towards the end of the Oberliga in 1985-86, if my memory serves me right. And the two teams were more or less neck on neck uh, about uh, in the chase for the league title, which at that time, Bethsen Dynamo had won six times in a row, I think, and ended up winning 10 times in a row in total during basically the entire 80s. Don't know why. It was, of course, the the team of the Stasi and of partic- and particular of their boss Erich Milke, but for some reason they did not really get the hang of controlling football until the late 80s, late 70s. But that aside, a very controversial penalty in injury time, which uh, then gave gave Dynamo the opportunity to win in Leipzig and move ahead in the title race uh, and event- eventually win. But it was seen as extremely controversial and uh, the referee was was suspected and accused of having awarded it because it was Dinamo and he was in their pay and all kinds of accusations and this and this went to the very top of the German East German political system the ref was eventually suspended uh, insisted that he had never done anything wrong that it was a penalty and uh, that he would have done the same if it was Locomotive, who should have been awarded a penalty, but but it was highly controversial, and I I found it interesting because this is speculation on my part, of course. But three years later, when the protests erupted that eventually led to the downfall of the East German re- regime, the epicenter was in Leipzig, and there is no obvious connection there. But there's, but it's it's interesting all the same that. It was a situation which discredited the German football authorities and by extension the East German regime and perhaps paved the way for the sort of development which you saw a few years later. At least that's one possible hypothesis and that's one of the reasons I found it interesting. Dynamo, of course, were, as you say, the Stasi side. They were pretty much getting all the best players sent to them. I mean, players were asked, you might say, well, not gently, they were told, you go to Dynamo and that's where you play. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's one, one of the heroes of the 74 World Cup win for the GDR over West Germany, uh, Einhard Lauk, was actually a Union Berlin player who never wanted to leave Union, but who was told that you go to Dynamo Berlin. But they had the best side, make no mistakes about that, in East Germany because of that. And when they played internationally, they actually could uh, they could wipe the floor with uh, with the best of them at times. I mean, my favorite team, uh, Werder Bremen, they they faced them in East Germany and lost three 0 Yeah, they were pretty much outdone by them in a game that was fair and square, and uh, which Werder Bremen would have lost even if that won it on the pitch because of a Norwegian. Vega Skulkheim was on the bench and he didn't have a playing license. So if <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do recall that uh, that he was at Werder for a short and not very successful spell. But, but he was he was actually brought in as the promising Norwegian, and Rune Bratze was brought in as uh, you know the the hopeful kind. Um, <laughs> the, their careers turned and differed quite a lot. Vega Skukam, of course, went back to Norway, playing mostly for Hamkam. Yeah, and uh, Rune Bratze is still a legend at, at Werder Bremen these days. Before we wrap up, you before we started this interview, you told me in, in our Twitter exchange uh, that you had a few stories that you left out from the book because they didn't necessarily fit the narrative you were going for. Are there any stories relating to German football among those left out stories that you were sorry to drop? And if yes, what stories can you tell us? Uh, quite a lot of them were actually related to German football. I, you know, I lived in, in Berlin for years and German football is one of my particular interests, so it's no surprise that there should be a 
a few German stories. But, well, firstly, there is quite obviously uh, Lothar Matthäus uh, sing in the FDF final uh, for Mönchengladbach against Bayern uh, in his final game for Gladbach before joining Bayern, uh, which in itself is, of course, a you know, an intriguing story. Did he really miss? Uh, and you can speculate on him missing on purpose to help his new teammates and all that. But I think it's more interesting when seen in a different context, namely with the World Cup final six years later, because at that time, Matthäus was the captain and normally the first choice penalty taker. He had taken the penalty against Czechoslovakia and the first in the shootout against England. But then in the final... Andy Bremer takes it, and of course, Bremer was an excellent penalty taker and scored as you would expect him to, but it's still, it's interesting to speculate whether Matthäus actually got a little jittery and preferred to leave it to a teammate because he had missed in a final earlier. Then, of course, uh, this one is not very enjoyable for you, being a Werder Bremen fan, but <laughs> Mikhail Kutsov, uh, uh, who missed uh, a famous penalty for Werder Bremen in the penalty, the game of the 1985 and 86 season. Uh, if he had scored, Bremen would have been champions. But, the, uh, the most fun, um, well, least fun, and uh, <laughs> a fun fact about about this uh, about Kunstop is that he only missed one penalty in his entire career. Yeah, and that's the one. That's the one. And then, and then Bayern overtook them on the final day of the season, which is. The only time in German football history that the winning side had never been on top of the table until after the final round of games had been played. That's the after the last round. That's the only time Bayern were top. Is very typically Bayern in a way. But uh, and then we have a famous story about a penalty not awarded on the final day of the. 1991-92 season, when Dortmund, uh, Stuttgart and Eintracht Frankfurt could all win. It was an extremely tight situation at the top of the table. And actually, the week before, Eintracht had had the opportunity to basically secure the league title. They were playing Werder Bremen, who had stepped off the plane from winning the Cup Winners' Cup against Monaco in Lisbon. And... A few years back, I interviewed uh, Jan Andersen, the Norwegian striker who was the first corner to be top scorer in the Bundesliga and who was, uh, who was in the Eintracht squad at that time. And he, said, he insisted that all the Werder Bremen players had, all, had been still drunk when they went onto the pitch. That is and I, actually confirmed in Uli Borowski's autobiography. He actually writes that uh, they were... <laughs> They were so hammered on the pitch that they were surprised that they actually managed to pull themselves together for that yeah, match. Obviously, Lunabot said was not so drunk because he's a teacher, but all the rest of them. Still, uh, they managed to uh, get a draw from that game, which meant that Eintracht had, had to win in the final game away at Hansa Rostock. And apparently, they were still quite confident of doing so because they treated the trip to the Northeast like like a family holiday, bringing their wives and children and apparently lots of champagne for the, for the party. And they had also rented out an entire hotel by the Frankfurt airport for, you know, when they came home with, uh, with the trophy. And then it was a draw and they needed a win because uh, Dortmund and Stuttgart were both winning at the time, I think. And then there was a situation in the Rostock penalty area where, where a Frankfurt player went to ground and... The Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung called it the most obvious foul of the entire season, but the referee, uh, a man called Alphonse Berg, just waved it away. There was no penalty, and afterwards, the referee Berg was shown the situation on, on a TV screen, and he said, yes, you're right, that's a penalty, I was wrong, I feel pity for, for Frankfurt, but that was it. They lost the title to Stuttgart, and... Due to this, the phantom penalty or the trauma von Rostock. Well, I mean, we could open up another can of worms here, saying that, well, is that is that do such examples show you that VAR actually makes sense? But let, let's not go there. One penalty from from the world of German football, which I would have assumed you might have had a look at, is is the one that Andy Müller 
got awarded against Karlsruhe SC. I think it was back in 95 or 94 when he went up against Dirk Schuster, who later on claimed that you could have parked a car between me and Andy Müller when he went to the ground. <laughs> and that penalty was actually awarded. Andy Müller, who, of course, is a former Frankfurt player as well. So, But talking about penalties, you, you allude to, to that and at the end of your book, that the future of penalties might look differently because, as it is now, uh, minor infractions in the penalty box lead to such big consequences. Yeah. I mean, a game can turn on a penalty decision, uh, but, you know, and some of these penalty decisions can go both ways. I mean, for instance, tell you a story about Werder Bremen. They have, they played a great cup semi-final against Bayern München a couple of years ago. They went down 2-0, they got back to 2-2, and then there was a penalty decision, which was, well, it was strict, to say the least, because there was the slightest of pushes. The ref actually whistled for a contact on the shin of the leg, which wasn't there. The VER assistant didn't communicate properly with him, but he thought he was talking about a push, which was ever so slight. And and these infractions, they, they are so minor, but still they can lead to such big consequences as a team going out of a competition. Yeah, of course. It's like at basically any level of football, roughly 75% of penalties are scored, which means that it's an enormous goal-scoring opportunity, the biggest you can get in football, basically. And as you say, it's often for very minor infractions. And it has to whatever one thinks about the rules and the way they are interpreted and so on, the situation today is definitely very different from what was the case when the penalty kick was introduced 130 years ago. Then we were talking about blatant handballs, violent fouls, and so on. And, And you rarely see those kind of situations in the modern game. When I was going to find a situation which resembles the 1890s penalty decision. Then I had, then I had to go back 10 years to, to Luis Suarez handball on the line in the World Cup quarterfinal between Uruguay and Ghana. But mostly it's a ball brushing an arm or a slight push and or someone tugging a shirt where you don't even know which player tugged whose shirt first and, and so on. So I think I think it would make sense to at least for football to have a have a discussion with itself about whether the current penalty law is working as intended and if not what can we do to improve it and I I list three suggestions in the book the one is to raise the bar for actually giving penalties which is possible, even fairly easy to do, but which has its obvious drawback in that it could lead to more destructive football and, in the worst case, dangerous play, uh, for especially for forwards. The second one is to change other aspects of the game, which leading to more goals being scored, uh, and thus the impact of a penalty decision becoming diminished. The problem with that, I think, is that the critical success factor of football is, in fact, that it's a low-scoring game. Uh, That's what makes it so exciting, that uh, there aren't that many goals, which means that each goal is a major event, and also means that the fact that football is low-scoring means that there's a greater chance for an underdog to prevail, at least in individual games. If you made it much easier to score goals, that's those who would benefit from that would be the super clubs who already tend to dominate the games, possession, and so on completely. So then the third suggestion, which I think is the most viable, at least at the current point, is to actually reconsider where the penalty is being taken from. It's been 12 yards for 130 years almost, but... There is actually no natural law which dictates that penalties must be taken from that particular distance. In in the 1890s and the earlier part of the 20th century, the ball, the footwear, the pitch were all radically different and of a lower quality than today, so which probably meant that it was 
more difficult to score penalties back then. So there is no reason we can't at least experiment with taking the penalties from, say, 14 or 16 yards and see if that perhaps can somehow alleviate the problem. Well, it, it would definitely reduce the scoring rate somewhat, I, I would assume. I mean, and, and you know, the, the fact that penalties can be so decisive in the game, it can be frustrating, it can be glorious. I mean, depending on which side you're on or, 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 yeah. or, or, in that particular match. Um, as, as you mentioned earlier, and this is not relating to penalties at whatsoever, you have lived in Berlin for some time. Right now, we are pretty much in isolation. COVID-19 is going on and um, nobody's doing anything remotely fun. But what advice would you give to ground helpers who decide to visit Berlin upon this being over? What should they do for a football weekend? Is, is there any, are there any interesting Berlin sites that you, from the lower divisions, which have made an impression of, on you whilst you were living there? Uh, firstly, Berlin, I think, is a great city for ground hopping. There is always, except during this pandemic, there is always a game going on somewhere and you can, at basically any level, you can trust that there will be beer and hot dogs at least. But it's, I think when you go to uh, football in the lower leagues, which I have done quite a lot, then it's not necessarily the qualities of the team, but more the atmosphere, uh, the people you meet there, uh, is the stadium pleasant? All those things matter more. Uh, so, yeah, I have a few favorites mentioned here in no particular order. I'll begin with, with Mumsenstadion, the home of Tebe, which uh, I like. I mean, I am, after all, I started as a writer in the world of fiction, so I like the fact that uh, Mumsenstadion is the only stadium I know of named after a winner of the Nobel, P Nobel Prize for Literature, Theodor Mumsen, who uh, wrote a real 2,000-page page-turner about ancient Roman history. <laughs> uh, but in any case, it's, it's a bit ramshackle, but it's a nice place to, to go and watch football, and if it's a cold night, the Glühwein is good. Then I'll also mention Poststadion in Wobbit, which for Norwegian holds special significance because it was there Norway beat Germany at the 1936 Olympics uh, with a very disgruntled Hitler in the stands. Only, uh, only game of football he ever watched. Apparently. Apparently it was also, he had actually decided to go and watch rowing that day. And Germany on that very day won two gold medals in rowing, but instead he was persuaded to come to the football and uh, had to watch them lose to little Norway. Uh, but in any case, uh, I am not actually quite sure who play at the Poststadion right now. Is there it? have been various teams. Um, uh, well, isn't it RK Berlin at the moment? I, I know at least that I have watched them there a few years I've, back. I've, I've been to the Poststadion as well. I mean, I've, I've seen Beef Sidenamo there, but that was for a cup match against VfB Stuttgart. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't know. Arca Berlin, they have played there. I'm, I'm, I might, I think they are still playing there. Uh, with uh, Bevsu Dynamo actually playing at the Jan Sport Park these days, I would imagine. And then uh, you have the Werner Seelenwinder Sport Park. <laughs> I've been to that one as well. Which I first visited when uh, I was doing research for an article about uh, Tasmania and their legendary single season in the Bundesliga when they set all kinds of negative records, which still stand. But when they also seem to have had a lot of fun and drunk a lot of wine, according to what I found out. But anyway, Tasmania or the Phoenix Club from the old Tasmania side uh, still play there. Uh, and it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a cozy little ground where, I don't know if you've seen my, this makes no sense in a podcast, but my Twitter, the top of my Twitter with four old men standing on the sidelines of a football pitch, that's taken at the Werner Selmbinder Sportsbot. And then lastly, strictly speaking, not in Berlin, but, but out in Potsdam, uh, Karl Liebknecht Stadion, home of uh, Babelsberg, which is, you know, a pretty cool club and a nice place to watch football. Just just don't go if they are playing Energie Cottbus, which they did the first time I went there and the game was held up twice due to 
Uh, <laughs> crowd violence. But there have been some rulings made by the local football association when it comes to matches between Anarchy Coppers and Babelsberg. I don't agree with all of them necessarily, but again, that would be a topic for an entire, entirely different podcast because we could talk about that for two, three hours. But obviously, yes, Babelsberg, I've never been to. I, I planned on going. We. Me and you were actually supposed to go to Berlin uh, to watch the Berlin Derby, or I was at least. I don't know if you were going to go to that event that would have it was seen many the Norwegians. Plan, the, the Norwegian invasion of uh, of Berlin, uh, but of course then that everything went out the window with COVID-19. Yeah, just, just two weeks earlier, the, the Friday night match or the Babelsberg match was moved to Friday night uh, before COVID-19 hit. So I, I was so looking forward to, to seeing them. And talking about Union Berlin, that has been mentioned before, but you actually, your old apartment in Berlin was taken over by a Union Berlin player, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. Uh, Christopher Lenz there, who was, um, who was on loan at Holstein Kiel at the time, I believe, and who had just suffered a horrifying injury and arrived to sign the contract more or less directly from hospital but uh, he eventually recovered and has now actually managed to play quite a few games in the Bundesliga for Union yeah yeah actually done quite quite well well Nils Henry it's been an absolute pleasure and delight having you on um, thanks for joining us and uh, giving us a bit of a history lesson that um, was really interesting we, we went an entire hour without mentioning that you actually are from the same place as Erling Braut Holland which is yeah, thing. No, which actually is impressive. <laughs> I am actually from the same place as that. But it's like, I mean, we were sitting watching him and being totally amazed at the start at Dortmund, but then we were just, then this pandemic struck and we were left with no football, so that's a bit sad. But at least apparently his dad has read my book. <laughs> well, uh, I hope I hope that the book is translated into English because it's absolutely an excellent book. And if you're a publisher listening to that, you can follow Nils Henrik on Twitter. Where? Uh, at uh, Nils Henrik Smith. There you go. Once again, thanks for joining us and uh, talk to you soon, hopefully. My pleasure. This is it for another episode of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, rate us on iTunes, and by all means, get in touch with us if you have any ideas for what we could discuss on the show or if you just want to say hi. Once again, thanks to my guest this week. It was a pleasure having Nils Henrik Smith on our show. Stay safe. Until next time. Bye.